Hi, my name is Nolan Duffy. I'm also a member here, and I'm going to read our scripture passage this morning. Uh, We're going to be reading out of Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, starting verse 1. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Hey, I'm Brandon. Uh, Good morning. Glad you guys are here. I'm one of the pastors here at Soma. We are in a new series, uh, if you missed last week, on uh, the Sermon on the Mount, possibly one of the most well-known passages of Scripture. If you've taken an ethics class in a university, even not a Christian one, you've probably heard at least of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and uh, many of us like the Sermon on the Mount. I said this last week. Um, and we like it because we've never actually read it. Um, but if you actually try to live out the Sermon on the Mount, it's a terrifying teaching uh, because Jesus prevent, presents all these weighty realities and invites us to live and reorient ourselves as as a, um, I'm going to try to stay away from this, as a beautiful people. Blessed are these people. We said the reason we're teaching through the Sermon on the Mount for the next nine months is um, obviously we, we love the scriptures and, and we're living in this cultural moment where I, I, the best way I could categorize it, and I think it was helpful for some of us last week, is to call it just a moment of cultural PTSD. We're, we're living in this moment where everybody feels traumatized. Everybody feels trolled. Everyone feels beleaguered. Everyone feels victimized. And so everyone's kind of like pointing fingers at somebody else. And and there's kind of the two responses. And the church really falls into both of these responses and different, depending on the church that you go to. Um, One response has just been this rage. Angry, shaking our fists, but, but without any kind of redemptive purpose or redemptive power. So we just rage. We get angry, we get frustrated, we go off on people, yell at people, tweet at people, stigmatize people, stereotype people, bully people, label people. That's kind of one response. On the other hand, some of it's just retreat. I was talking to some of you people at the first service this morning. It's like, I'm just tired. I'm exhausted. I'm burned out. I'm tired of the political back and forth. I'm tired of just the polarization. And so we retreat. And by retreat, I don't mean like you buy a bunker in desert in a desert in Arizona and you get your shotgun in your Bible and you just go underground and pray like imprecatory psalms against people. Like God rain down your wrath and dash their children's heads against the rocks. That's not what I mean by necessarily retreat, although some of us will be tempted to do that at times. Like I've heard people say, man, I would just love to move to like Wyoming or Wisconsin or out in the middle of somewhere out west and just go. Yeah, sorry, Grant, just move somewhere where there's not a lot going on. And uh, and hide out. Just kidding. There's a lot going on in Wisconsin. I'm going to hit this bush. No, don't move it. I, I need this test. I need this. Okay. It's my wife. She's afraid. 
So I've knocked the communion table over before uh, in a service. That's why she's nervous. Very handsy. But retreat doesn't just look like moving out into a desert. Retreat could be just escaping into comfort and saying, you know what? I'm just going to escape into Instagram. I'm going to escape into fantasy world. I'm just going to disconnect and detach and not have anything to do with this crazy world. And the way that Jesus invites us to be is neither of those. Although Jesus certainly rages at times and he retreats at times, the, the way of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in the kingdom of God is what we'll call creative resistance. Creative resistance. It's bringing the redemptive purpose and power and presence of God into the places we inhabit. It's, it's, it's not freaking out. That's just cultural PTSD. It's like we're just freaking out. We're anxious. We're fearful. We're uncertain, which, which just heightens the sense of uh, PTSD that we all experience. And so we said that in Matthew 4 last week that Jesus enters into a world very much like ours. The most surprising thing in this cultural moment as a person who loves history is that we're surprised. We're like surprised. Oh my gosh, the president. Oh my gosh, this. Oh my gosh. And we're all like all freaking out. And it's like, this is the very world. I mean, Jesus came into the Roman Empire where in chapter three we see, uh, in chapter two we see that they're killing babies. Like infanticide is common. Oppression is common. A world of darkness. That's the world that Jesus enters into. And in verse 17 of chapter four, Jesus says, Repent. Stop it, he says. Turn around. Go the other way. Don't you see that you're under the sway of the kingdom of darkness? But I've come to bring light. I've come to be light, to be the kingdom of light, which in John chapter one, uh, the author John, the apostle John will say the light overcomes the darkness. There's been an insurrection. There's been a resistance. If you're into Star Wars, there is a rebellion greater. And I would argue the one that probably George Lucas is booting off of. There is a resistance greater than the Galactic Empire and the struggle in the Star Wars. Like there is a reality there that Jesus has entered in to bring a kingdom of justice, to bring a kingdom of righteousness, to bring a whole new way of seeing the world, which is what we talked about last week. And then in the rest of the sermon, we're going to talk about being in the world. But we can't miss chapter 4 because it starts in verse 17 with repent, turn around. Repent of your self-centeredness. Repent of these ways of seeing the world that are not in line with ultimate reality. And Jesus says, I'm bringing ultimate reality. What's more true than the political chaos is the kingdom of light. What's more true than cultural fragmentation is the kingdom of light. What's more true than what's happening in our neighborhoods freaking us out is the kingdom of light. And he says, it's done. It's at hand. It's here. So today we come to this passage here. Um, actually, Phil, I, sorry, I'm sick today. Can I, can I have my iPad? I actually need my notes. Um, <laughs> a little foggy here. Uh, we come to this passage in Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to talk today about uh, the first of these Beatitudes. So, so Jesus enters the scene, chapter 5, seeing the crowds, which were disciples and uh, non-Christians both together. He, he goes up on the mountain, uh, similar to Moses. There's a lot of parallels in the book of Matthew to the Exodus. Jesus, in the new Exodus, bringing and delivering a people out of the bondage of the kingdom of darkness, begins to, goes up on a mountain and begins to teach his disciples. It says he opened his mouth and he taught them. He's, he's installing a new operating system in the world. And so I want, to, I want us to see who Jesus 
is talking to. Three questions I just want to jump right into. One, who is Jesus talking to? It says, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the poor in spirit that are blessed? Secondly, what does it mean for them to be blessed? And then finally, what does that mean for us? What does Jesus' teaching have to do with the way that we live as a community right here in Indianapolis? And so first, who is Jesus talking to? And I say that because um, it, it's easy for us to fall in one of two ditches when it comes to thinking about poverty of spirit. I mean, again, we've, we're so familiar here that we lose the shock value of what was happening. Jesus was, was what, what he's saying here was very subversive, very countercultural. It was shocking to the hearers of his day. And I think the tendency is, depending on where you grew up, um, for some of us, we grew up in churches that want to run right to the spiritual aspect of this. They want to spiritualize this and say, blessed are the humble, blessed are the humble minded. Um, you know, and we run there as if um, there's some quality about us that's humble um, and, and, and kind of uh, self-effacing that God is drawn towards as if like we can be humble enough to merit and curry favor with God. And so we spiritualize this and we say, be humble, be nice, be kind. You know, here's your bumper sticker. You know, like that's what some of us, others of us grew up in, in environments where we, um, we only talk about blessed are the poor and we don't, we don't get to the end of that. And so we secularize. If one spiritualizes, the other secularizes this as if being poor is a good thing. As if being poor is itself meritorious. As if being poor is the goal of what God's saying. Blessed are you when you just Sell everything you have and become poor. That, that will solve all of life's problems. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, this word here, so let's, let's talk about poor for a minute. Um, this word here, patokos, is a really interesting word in the, in the Greek. It's the strongest word in Matthew's lexicon to talk about poverty. So in the Gospels, there's two words for poverty. Patokos, and then there's another one that describes what we might call the working class. So the working class are a category of the poor, lower middle class, working class, blue collar folk who live paycheck to paycheck. This word here, Patokos, actually is, is totally different. Patokos is describing a state of abject poverty. It comes from a word, uh, that, a group of words that mean to cringe or to cower. So you're in such abject, systemic, involuntary, poverty. You're not living paycheck to paycheck. You're living hand to mouth. So this kind of poverty, I mean, when we define poverty at the basic level, it's essentially lacking the basic resources to thrive as a human being. You lack the basic resources in yourself to be what we'd call self-sufficient, to provide a reasonable standard of living to thrive as a human being. So this kind of poor Folk, which, by the way, this is this is not Jesus delivering some like esoteric, you know, like him sitting up the whiteboard in a philosophy class talking about. Imagine these hypothetical people who live in this kind of abject poverty. No, back to verse one, seeing the crowds. Who's in the crowds? Go back to chapter four. Jesus is ministering the kingdom. He's proclaiming the kingdom, healing people. We see people that have diseases. If you had diseases in those days, you were looked at as inferior. You were poor, mostly. Afflicted people. 
We see that uh, the sick, we see those afflicted with various diseases, chronic pain, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, the mentally ill. These are the people. So when Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor, he's looking them in the eyes. Blessed are you, even you, poor in spirit. So we need to keep that in mind. Another way to think about this is these are people who are completely bankrupt. This is a word that would be used for the beggarly, the destitute, the empty, people who have been so emptied of any confidence in themselves, they know they have no resources to help themselves out of poverty, and so they would often find themselves begging. And and I don't know if you've ever been in this kind of poverty. To be honest, I didn't grow up in poverty, so just being being straight. Uh, I've, I've never lived in this kind of poverty myself. Having been to countries, seen and traveled, and also uh, walked alongside folks in our church who, who've grown up in this kind of systemic involuntary poverty. He's not talking about a vow of poverty here. He's not talking about a bunch of Christians who read David Platt's book Radical and decided to move into this like, you know, monastic apartment complex. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying like, you're trapped. You have no options. Um, and when you have no options, like just enter into that for a second emotionally. Because poverty has many faces. Poverty is not just material. Poverty is emotional, like shame, guilt, loneliness, feeling less than, feeling judged, feeling unworthy. There's an emotional poverty that can come with physical poverty, a loss, a loss of dignity and value and self-respect. There's relational poverty, right? Because, I mean, when you're poor, things get weird in conversation. What do you do for a living? I, I'm unemployed. I've actually been unemployed for six years. Oh, like what do we talk about around our dinner tables and lunch tables after we go out, after we leave Soma? What are you doing in the business for? I'm killing it, crushing it. How are things going? Awesome. I'm making this deal. I sold this product. What do you do? Man, I've been unemployed for a while. I'm actually really struggling. Oh, I mean, there's that isolation that can happen. People feel alone. Robert Putnam, who's a sociologist, describes it as not having any airbags. I think that's the most helpful way to think about it. Many of us, even though we might find ourselves in lower middle class situations, we have what Putnam would call airbags. Airbags are when things get difficult. So let's say you grow up here in Indianapolis and you move out to the coast and, you know, you're living in some flat with like 20 people in San Francisco um, and things just go sideways. You lose your job. The tech startup falls apart. And what do we do? Don't freak out. You call mom and dad. Hey, mom and dad, I'm coming home. I'm going to live in your basement. I need your help. That's called an airbag. When things go bad, the airbag deploys and it cushions our fall. And then we're able to recover. And that's how we build a sense of agency and discipline and forward movement in the world is that failures don't trap us. For a poor person, for a person that's locked in poverty, they have no airbags. So when when things get difficult, all they hear is there's no airbag. So their airbag becomes... I got to make things happen. I got to make things work. Whatever I got to do to get to tomorrow. Payday loan centers. Like whatever I've got to do to survive. Like when you feel that kind of poverty, then you can begin to understand the second half of the statement. But don't just run to the poor in spirit. He's not just talking about a modest, nice, humble, middle class person. He's talking about being overwhelmed overwhelmed by a system of poverty. 
Luke actually doesn't even talk about being poor in spirit. If you go to Luke's gospel in chapter 6, which is probably a different sermon, he just says, blessed are the poor. But Matthew spiritualizes it. He, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit, that word spirit there is the same word we, we use for Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, it could also be used to talk about wind or air. And so the idea or the picture that he wants us to get is that same thing, that lack of basic resources to thrive, that's how you're like spiritually when you come into the kingdom of God. That's the only way you get into the kingdom of God is if God in his grace so moves redemptively in your life that you feel that sense of utter desperation and hopelessness and helplessness and sense of being trapped as a person is trapped in poverty. That poverty of the soul is literally like having the wind knocked out of you, he says. Feeling the crushing weight of I don't have what it takes to make myself right before God. Like if you're a Christian, you know what that feels like. That's not just like I show up at church and sing the songs. That is, I've been humiliated because I realize I don't have what it takes to be right with God. And Jesus says, blessed are those folks. Blessed are, as Dallas Willard said famously, the spiritual zeros. The the people who don't have their act together, who don't know when the liturgy turns and when to sing the songs and what to say and don't understand any of the language. Jesus says, blessed are you, poor in spirit, because you know you have no money in your bank account to bring to this equation. Another way to think about it is looking at the opposite of it. So if poverty in spirit is one thing, another way to understand the poor in spirit is to think about what it might mean to be full or rich in spirit. That, that, that idea of instead of being empty of self, I'm full of self. We call that in America like self-sufficient, and it's the goal for a lot of us. I want to be independent. I want to be self-reliant, the self-made man, the self-made woman. I mean, that is the narrative under which we live as Americans. We see this um, in Luke 18. A lot of scholars say this is kind of the high watermark for what this looks like. If you just flip over a few books to Luke chapter 18, we see what this can look like spiritually. In the heart of a religious person with the Pharisee and the tax collector. Verse 9 of Luke chapter 18. Jesus told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They were trusting in themselves that they had it together. They were trusting in themselves that they had what it took to make themselves right with God and right with the world. And, And what does that lead to? They treat others with contempt. They think they're better. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing off by himself, detached, feeling good about himself, prays thus. It's interesting that God exposes self-sufficiency in prayer. You often don't know how self-righteous you are until you look at your prayer life. If you're self-righteous and self-sufficient, you tend not to pray a whole lot because you think you can do it in your own strength. But when you do pray, you tend to kind of do it in a very condescending way, a very self-exalting way. God, thank you. And we're going to see his prayer here. Thank you that I am not like other men. God, thank you that I am blessed. Thank you that I am fortunate. Thank you that I'm privileged, he says. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This is the heart of self-sufficiency. 
Who or what are you trusting in to make yourself okay, to make yourself acceptable to God, to make yourself righteous with other people, to prove yourself? A Pharisee, a self-sufficient person, trusts in their own righteousness, their education. They've been very educated. Their, their morality, their wealth, their status, these are all things that we can trust in to help prop up the sagging sense of bankruptcy that God wants us to fill. We see the contrast there in verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The heart of poverty of spirit is saying, God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. God, I've got nothing to bring to the table. I've got nothing to bring to this equation. I have nothing in my bank account. It is empty and it needs to be filled by you. So God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And here's the thing. We can't manufacture this. This is what makes poverty and spirit so hard. Like, have you ever tried to be more humble? I'm going to be humble this week. Even by saying you're going to be humble makes you not humble. I'm going to write a book on humility. You're not humble if you're selling it for money. If you're always telling your wife how humble you are, you're not humble. If you're always yelling at your kids for not being humble, you're probably not humble and you're the problem. That's why we hate it in other people. We hate we hate self-righteousness in other people because we know our own self-righteousness. Don't you hate self-righteous people who walk around with a swag and they walk around with this confidence and you're just like, oh, just make me. Why do you feel like that? Because we all know that we are self-righteous. And we despise it when we see it in other people and we pretend. So it's, it's hard and we can't manufacture this. Why Jesus says, stop, turn around. Only by my grace do you become poor in spirit. You can't manufacture this. This isn't about like, you know, working yourself up into some Zen mode of poverty of spirit where you go, I'm going to empty myself, hum, you know, and you like get into this posture in the lotus position. I'm going to be humble No, you can't be humble. You can't even see how proud you are. That's how bad it is. And so poverty of spirit, Jesus is talking to not a group of people who are temperamentally nice and happy all the time. Some of you are just wired to be temperamentally happy and you drive all the rest of us crazy. We don't like you, okay? That's not what it means to be humble. Like you see a person who's nice and you're tempted to say, oh, they're so humble. No, they are genetically wired. There is neuroscience that shows us their brain is wired with more of happy. Okay, and they just are happy and optimistic. That's not humility. That's not poverty of spirit. You could be really, really happy and be really, really proud. It's not a temperament. It's not self-hatred. It's not low self-esteem. You know, some people think of Christians like this. In order to be poor in spirit, I've just got to walk around all the time and call myself a worm. I'm a terrible person. You know, somebody gives you a compliment. No, it's not about me. It's about God. You know, this like false humility thing that we do. Um, You know, we think I just got to be a bad person. I've got to just confess my sins all the time and be all depressed and Eeyore and how I live out my Christianity because God wants me to be humble. It's false humility. Because in our despairing and in our confessing, what are we doing? We're taking pride in the fact that we are despairing. We're taking pride in the fact that we're humble, which then by necessity means we're not. And so God is not, Jesus is not talking to people saying, you know, um, make yourself humble. 
Make yourself humble. One scholar says it like this. The Beatitudes originally described people in deplorable situations and only secondarily people with remarkable dispositions. The Son of God simply blesses broken people. He just simply blesses broken people. The Beatitudes must first be heard as grace or they will not be heard correctly. Jesus' Beatitudes are first sheer gifts. To the one who feels crushed, Jesus says, Blessed are you, poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Why in the world? That just sounds weird. Like if I told you this week, you're going to become poor, like really poor next week. You're going to lose your job. You're going to get some kind of chronic illness. Your bills are going to mount. You're not going to be able to pay. You're going to go into debt. You're going to uh, enroll for this program at Butler University thinking that when you get out in five years, you're going to make it all back and pay off your debts and you're going to end up with $300,000 in school loans, not be able to pay them off 10 years later, hypothetically speaking. You're going to become poor. How many of you would say, yeah? Like some of you are weird like that and you would go, yeah, bring it on. Like I'll, I'll, I'll beat poverty. Huh? Like Lady Gaga was in town this week. It's like a total sideline. She said like the dumbest thing I've ever heard anybody say. She like whipping people up before the uh, before the concert. She said there was a there was a tornado watch in effect that night, and she put out on Twitter, "Come on, Indy, let's beat the tornado." You're like it's an act of nature. You can't beat a tornado. You lose every time. Some of you are like, "Yeah, bring on poverty." No, I promise you, you don't want to be poor. And yet Jesus says, blessed are you, poor in spirit. See, this was very countercultural then. It is very countercultural now. It was subversive then. It's subversive now. Because the reason we don't understand blessing is because it's been so watered down. And we have a vision for blessing that's very different than the one that Jesus had. When he uses this word, blessed, it's this word, makarios. Makarios. Blessed are you, he says, Makarios. You see, in the Jewish mind, Makarios looks something like this. So we have this uh, ancient text called Syriac 25. It was from about a century before Jesus comes on the scene, and it typifies kind of the way that people would think about uh, blessing in those days. So hear this. If you grew up Catholic, it's actually in the Catholic Bible. I can think of nine whom I would call blessed, and a tenth my tongue proclaims. So what what does it mean to live the blessed life to a Jew? A man who can rejoice in his children. So we've already got a problem. To be blessed is to be a man. So if you're not a man, good luck. A man who has children. So if you're a man but you don't have children, you're single, which is like half of our church. You're definitely not blessed. You have no shot of being blessed. You're weird and dumb for the rest of your life. A man who has children, who can rejoice in them, he has well-adjusted, nice children. What about those that don't? What if your children are crazy? What if your children get diagnosed with an incurable disease? Then what? A man who lives to see the downfall of his foes, he gets clapped back on his enemies. Happy the man who lives with a sensible wife. His wife's whatever, quote-unquote, smoking hot, like everybody wants to put on Twitter these days. It's like silly stuff. You know, like, she's smart, she's the perfect woman, she's the one, you know, like all this crazy stuff. The guy who has the one, everybody else not blessed. 
and the one, he says, who does not plow with ox and ass together. I, I'll leave that to you. The basis just means you have basic business acumen, okay? You're, you're, you're good with business. Blessed is that one. Happy is the one who does not sin with the tongue. You always say the right thing at the right time. You're smooth. You, know, you can pick up on social cues. But what about the rest of us, right? And the one who has not served an inferior. He doesn't work for somebody who's less intelligent than him. Okay, that throws out like 99% of us, right? Um, happy is the one who finds a friend. So if you're lonely, good luck. And the one who speaks to attentive listeners, every time you speak, people are hanging on your wisdom. They retweet it. It gets put out and disseminated. Your blog goes viral. Happy is that person. What about the one with four Twitter followers, though? Like, what about them? How great is the one who finds wisdom, but none is superior to the one who fears the Lord? So you get a sense for, like, Jesus shows up and he says, blessed is the poor in spirit. Blessed is the spiritual zero. I mean, these people would have been shocked. And, and we'd be shocked, too. We are shocked. Because we don't understand blessing any better than they did. So I grew up in the South. Um, one of the things that uh, people would often say to me when I was a kid, old, older women usually, they would uh, say, bless your heart. Now, if you're from the South, that is not a compliment. That basically means you are a moron. Okay, so if a, if a woman in the South, if you're ever driving through with your windows closed and your doors locked, driving through the South heading to the beach or something like that, and you stop at a gas station in Birmingham, Alabama, and you do something, and somebody says, oh, bless your heart, it is not a compliment, okay? That means you are a complete idiot, okay? You, you just did something really dumb. Bless your heart. Isn't that cute? Okay, so that's where I grew up. When I hear, blessed are you, I hear, bless your heart. If, you, if you've grown up in America, right, like our narrative doesn't help us any better. We live under, the, under what I just call the banner of the hashtag blessed. The hashtag double blessed. So everybody's on Twitter. Everybody's on Instagram. Oh, this is amazing. We have this very linear perspective of the world that the world is supposed to be a place of prosperity and we're upwardly mobile and everybody's moving upward in this like, you know, never ending progression of happiness. We have built into and hardwired into our founding documents, inalienable rights, the pursuit of happiness. Right. And so for us, happiness means prosperity. It means material security. Right. Hashtag blessed. So when we accomplish that, we make sure that we take a picture of it and we put it on Instagram. We say so blessed. And there's a Christian version of that because we do weird things with stuff. And it really annoys me. People say this all the time and not just here in India, all over the place. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. We say these kinds of things. We, we say, you know what? Don't worry about it. Don't worry that you just got cancer. The best is yet to come. Don't worry that you're poor. The best is yet to come. Really? Do you know where that statement, the best is yet to come, comes from? We use it like it's slogans and bumper stickers and like, you know, artists use it at like Christian concerts and we sing about it. You know where that comes from? The best is yet to come were words from the mouth and the pen of Corey, Dent, Corey Ten Boom's father after the Holocaust. best is yet to come. That's not what Jesus means. The best is yet to come. The word makarios in the Old Testament it was the word asrei. It was this rich word that meant fortunate are you. Wonderful news to you. It was not about 
divine favor merely falling on somebody. It was this word you see it in Psalm chapter one. Happy is the man. Happy is the woman. Whenever you see that, that's that word makarios. It, it was a salutation more than it was a blessing. So it wasn't like a eulogy. I bless you. It was more of a recognition that you are blessed. Congratulations. You've been favored. It was it was a word that was used in pagan Greek society to talk about those who had the favor of the gods, those who were living godlike lives. Now, how in the world do we say somebody who's poor in spirit, who's walking in abject soul poverty, who's walking in vulnerability, who's letting his weaknesses be seen and known is blessed, who's emptied themselves so that God can fill them. How in the world? I mean, that's not the way that we live. We don't live that way. Our culture doesn't reward that. We don't incentivize that. We don't know what to do when we go off script. Because we're promised blessing, we're promised to be crushing it in the workplace, but then we lose jobs. We're promised to have a bunch of kids and to have a nice, happy family, but then uh, our spouse walks out on us. We're promised to be married by the time we're 28 and we finish our master's program and then we're 35 and we're single. Hashtag blessed. Best is yet to come. Jesus says, the reason I can say congratulations, wonderful news to you is because yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's the only way this makes sense. Otherwise, this is insane. Mourning people don't get comforted all the time. The poor in spirit don't inherit riches in this world. The pure in heart don't see God in this world. I mean, otherwise, this makes no sense. That's why this beatitude is the most important in the progression. Because if we miss this, we miss the rest. Jesus says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. And of course, he's not just making that up out of nowhere. Everybody sees the background to this passage in Isaiah chapter 61. In Isaiah 61, which is on the lips of Jesus when he preaches his first sermon in Luke chapter 4. Jesus quoting the prophet Isaiah in the spirit of Isaiah says, The spirit of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Jesus says the reason you're blessed is because the kingdom of God is here. There's a new administration that's breaking in. And just like in our world, there's a new administration, new leadership, new policies, everything changes, new regime. Jesus says, when I come into this world and I begin to live among you, there is a new administration at work and the kingdom of God is here. And that's why you're blessed. It is not a blessing to be poor. Strictly speaking. What makes poverty a blessing in the kingdom of God, though you are stricken and empty, God says, I will fill you. Though you are weak, I will make you strong. Which is actually the strength that we need to survive a broken world. Though you are poor, I make you rich. 
with the kingdom of God. I make your soul rich. I make the core of your being rich, which is the kind of strength you need because I don't care how much money you make. It's not going to protect you against the brokenness of this world. You can make a million dollars a year and still be relationally and emotionally and spiritually poor and anxious and fearful. Man, you can be poor and have the kingdom of God and feel rich regardless of what's happening around you. So Jesus says the kingdom of God is here. I am here. I am with you. I am for you. The king of the universe has drawn near to you. Blessed are you because I am here. I am with you. I see you. I know you. I've not forgotten about you. Though the rest of society forgets about you, despises you, marginalizes you, even oppresses you, I am here with you. And this kingdom is both a present reality and a future hope. And if we miss that, we're going to miss really important. Present reality there's is the kingdom of heaven right now, and they will be comforted in the future. You see both in the Beatitudes. Present reality, it's broken in. He brings it, but not in its fullness. We're still waiting for the fullness. There's going to be a day when he comes and he makes all things right, and he truly comforts us, and he truly gives us what we need. It started right now, but it's not complete. So that's why Paul's going to write in Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in him. He chose us before the foundation of the world to love us in him. We have an inheritance. Peter says that is imperishable, that will not fade. He's poured it into our souls. It is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Those are not just like, you know, like things you write on some kitten poster somewhere and just like, you know, look at sometimes those are real realities. If you're in Christ. In Christ, that is all true of you right now, and it will be true of you forever. And so what's happening in this world as we suffer, as we walk through life, is that God is conforming us and making us more like those kind of people. With each trial, with each challenge, with each time we get humbled and humiliated, he's, he's building into us the kind of character and resilience that makes us a people of love who will one day inherit a world of love. So how does that change the way that we live? We'll go to communion. How does that change the way we live together as a community? You must see that this teaching here of Jesus in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and specifically the Beatitudes, is both a declaration and an invitation. It is both a declaration and an invitation. It is a declaration of the beautiful life. That's why we call them Beatitudes. It comes from the Latin word for beautiful. Jesus is declaring, this is the life, the kingdom of God. This is the world that we all long for. This is the good life. This is what it means to be fully human. You think being human is this. I'm going to show you a life that's not less than human, but so much more. But it's also an invitation. Jesus invites us to reorient our lives. It's not just like, oh, that's interesting. We should tweet about that. We should blog about that. Let's talk about that in missional community. No, this is a whole new way of life. It's a declaration and invitation to reorient ourselves to the coming kingdom. As those looking forward to this kingdom that is real and is coming, it should change the way that we live right now. Eugene Peterson says it like this. Scripture does not present us with a moral code and tell us to live up to this. Because again, if you try to live up to this, you will die. Okay, you will die. 
You will, it will crush your soul to try to be poor in spirit in the way that Jesus describes. Nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say, think like this and you will live well, right? Because we all have doctrinal statements that we can quote and we still do crazy stuff. What does he say? The biblical way is to tell a story and in the telling invite, live into this. This is what it looks like to be human in the God made and God ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. Two things that impacts how we see ourselves and how we treat others. Real simple. How we see ourselves, our identity, and how we treat others. Blessed are you, poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. For those of us, because there's two kinds of people in this room right now. Some of us are feeling prosperous. We're like, dude, this is a total downer. My life's actually going, I just got it back from my honeymoon. Can I just have like two weeks to kind of like enjoy that before you start into this craziness? I just went on my first date. Just had a baby. Some of us are feeling prosperous. Just got that job, got into that college we wanted to, got into that program we wanted to. We're feeling prosperous. And here's the thing. Jesus warns us, be careful. Be careful if you're in a season of prosperity or this is your, you're oriented towards the American dream. And again, I'm not against the American dream. I love this country that we live in. I'm thankful for the opportunities that we have. But Jesus says, be careful that you don't confuse financial prosperity with spiritual prosperity. It's easy to get them mixed up. Job's going well. I'm hashtag blessed. That's what you have to come. First Timothy chapter six in pastoring his people, Timothy says, be careful. The love of money is the root of all evil. Don't set your heart on riches. They will curse you. Not money itself, the love of money. So don't confuse those. Just assuming that, you know, for some of us, just by sheer virtue of the lottery of our birth, we have the opportunities and the privileges we have. So don't feel ashamed about that. It's not a cause for guilt to renounce your privilege. It's the world we all long for. But don't confuse that with spiritual prosperity. You could be prospering financially and suffering spiritually. So don't be proud. Don't feel superior. Don't think that you're better than somebody else just because of what you have. Understand that all that you have is by the grace of God. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't hang on to it. You're not in control. It could be gone tomorrow. It will be gone one day. Secondly, for those feeling their poverty right now, you're just like, hey, that's not me. I'm, I'm in a bad spot. I feel my poverty. I know who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to me. Blessed are you. Blessed are you when you don't get into that college. Blessed are you when you don't get into that program. Blessed are you when all of your attempts to have children don't result in a child. Blessed are you when you're adopting children and you're in the midst of all of that chaos. Blessed are you when you lose your job. Blessed are you when your husband walks out on you. Blessed are you because the king is with you. The kingdom of heaven has come. You are blessed by the king, not despite your pain, but in your pain. He sees you. He sees you. He knows you by name. He loves you. He has not forgotten about you. You are not inferior. You have nothing to be ashamed of. That's powerful. 
humble be exalted, the exalted be humbled. And then how we treat others. How we treat others. We see ourselves in this way and we know that everything we have is a gift. We are truly seeking to be poor in spirit by the grace of God. One of the ways we can measure how we're doing as a community of the spiritually poor is to look at how we're treating the materially poor in our community. Jesus makes that connection all the time. He makes it in the book of Matthew, Matthew 25. How you treated me, how you treated the least of these is how you treated me. So one of the ways we can ask ourselves and we can learn how we're doing is to look at how we're treating the materially poor. How we talk about them. The unfortunate. Even the word the poor is somewhat of a a way to categorize people in a way that makes us feel proud of ourselves. I'm not one of them. Man, if you've been rocked by the grace of God and humbled by the grace of God, and you recognize that apart from the grace of God, you have nothing, that you're spiritually bankrupt, then you should be able to totally identify with the material poor. I'm just like them. I am them. I was them. I am them. And so 1 Timothy chapter 6, he goes on to say, be generous, be gracious. Be grateful for the blessings you experience from God. Share those blessings with other people. Have compassion, not just empathy. Not just, oh man, I'm sad. That, that stinks to be you. No, true compassion. Moved with the compassion of Jesus. We share what we have recognizing that they are us. That's why we need Jesus' help. This is impossible. It's impossible to live into this without the help of Jesus And so as we go to the table, I just want us to reflect on that and to think about that. We can't become poor in spirit by trying to become poor in spirit. We need to see Jesus. Jesus, 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, became poor so that we could become rich. He emptied himself of all of his privilege, all of his status, all of his wealth of eternity that he possessed as the Son of God, and he shared it with us, and he invited us into life with him. That's how we become poor in spirit. We look at Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, for every one look you make at yourself, make ten looks at Jesus. You look at Jesus and you see his poverty. You look at Jesus and you see his sacrifice. He lived a life that we couldn't live, that we should have lived, but we couldn't, the righteous life. Died the death that we should have died, and he rose again, offering and bringing to us the fullness of his kingdom. As we look at him, we see his poverty. We look at ourselves and we see our pride, and we repent. We say, God, I'm, I feel better than other people. Or the other side of pride, God, I'm walking in inferiority and shame, and I need to repent of that pride. And then we look out to the world, and we say, God, where are you calling me to be a blessing as you bless me? And so as we come to the table in that spirit, as those who've received the riches of God's grace, let's, let's, let's repent. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, we'd invite you to take communion with us. We have stations at the front stations in the back to be a follower of jesus is just to say by god's grace he's made you poor in spirit you know you have nothing to bring to the equation and you're simply like the publican crying out god have mercy on me i'm a sinner god have mercy on me i'm a sinner i need your help that's what it means to be a christian god i need your help is religion a crutch for the weak yes we're all weak we need a crutch we need jesus if you're not a christian we'd invite you to stay in your seat as we take communion, and maybe just ask yourself, what would it look like for me to give my life to Christ and to put my greatest trust and hope, not in my own righteousness, but in his? So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask for God's help. We're going to sing a couple more songs, and then we'll send you guys back out. Father, we thank you for this word to us in the Beatitudes that you come, and in your grace and mercy, you open our eyes to see our need for spiritual poverty, 
to, to abandon all efforts to be self-sufficient, to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. God, we don't have what it takes. We are insufficient to provide thriving and fullness of life for ourselves and for our souls and for our eternity and for our community. God, we don't have it. So God, have mercy on us, a community of sinners looking to a perfect Savior to give and to be what we cannot give and be for ourselves. God, would you fill us as we empty, as you empty us and as we step and live into that emptiness. God, fill us. Fill us with your strength. Fill us with your power. Fill us with your love. Make us a resilient community of love. And God, as we move out into the world, make us a powerful force for love in the communities, in the workplaces, and on the campuses where you've placed us, knowing that your blessing is on the poor of spirit because ours is the kingdom of heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.